Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Pastor John Jay, and I am the lead pastor here. And it is uh, the last Sunday of the year. Did you know? Now, we're not talking about the calendar year. We're talking about the church year. Uh, we keep time a little different in church. And so the cycle for the year begins next Sunday at Advent. So Advent are the first sun, four Sundays of the church calendar that lead us up to Christmas, which is the first like big high holy holiday of our tradition and practice. But today is the last Sunday of that cycle, and it's known as Christ the King Sunday. This is the day, if we are following in the church calendar, the life ministry of Jesus worked out in the stories found in the Gospels, then it's all leading toward this grand reveal that turns out this Jesus we call the Christ is in fact the king of all kings. It's a big deal and it takes a long time to get and we have to work on this every year. So that's today. Today is also the last Sunday in this preaching cycle we've been on about these four marks or four anchors of what it means to be a church together. And so that's why there's four anchors on the ship. It's not just because it's a poorly designed anchor that you need four of them. Uh, it is... We've talked about this ship or a boat being a metaphor for the church, and that's a pretty old historic metaphor. Even the building often, if you're in a church building, this well-designed might look like an upside-down boat. That's not as much here, but in other places. And anchors were early Christian symbols of uh, what it meant to follow God, to be grounded in a world that is pretty chaotic. So, the first one was worship, our life together. Uh, is found in a weekly rhythm of corporate worship. We're doing it. We did it, guys. First one, down. Second one is friendship or these smaller groups of mentors or apprentices or small groups in some situations, but a place where you are not just kind of a sea or a mass of people who don't know one another, but that you, in fact, belong to one another. And that's the place where formation might happen. The third, last week we talked about giving. And each Sunday we have an opportunity to give uh, to God's work in the world, specifically to the ministries that we feel called to here as a congregation. Fourth and final, this Sunday, uh, we're going to talk about service, about what it means to give your, your energies and yourself over to this work of building God's kingdom here. So that's, that's where we're going to be together. Okay. Next week is Advent. Uh, if you have not been with us in the Advent season, it's it's pretty amazing. Actually, side note: if you have no plans after church today, and if you do have plans that you could cancel, then you could. We're going to stay afterwards, and we're going to decorate this place to get ready for Advent. It's kind of like a, an annual hanging of the greens. So, let's get started. If you would, would you pray with me as we begin? God, as we continue in worship, we ask that you stay with us in these moments where we listen, we open our hearts and open our ears to hear. And as I open my mouth to speak, make me a little bit more porous and a little bit more clear. Thank you for creating this space for us to enter into, for giving us a home where we belong. Hear these prayers. Christ's name. Amen. All right. Did you know that every year the people who are in charge of the dictionary release a word of the year? Have y'all kept, do you keep up with this? Do we have any folks who are just Rini? 
No? You don't know the word of the year? Rini is a, is a professor of literature and English, and you should know the word of the year. Do you know what the word of the year was for 2016? Do you want to guess? Bling? <laughs> you nailed it. Does anyone know what the word of the year was for 2016? Viral? Close. Well, actually, it's not close, but it could have been. <laughs> Say it again. Emoticon. Uh, no, but do you know what emoticons are? Yeah, they do these like little little face things made out of pixels. What you got, Daniel? Who? Vlog or blog? You'll notice all of these are related to internet things. Um, no, did someone say emojis? It's a it's a it's a really nerdy word, Robbie. Emojis. Uh, no, but I, it it could be. It could be the word of the year this year. Uh, it was this really fun word. Hey, by the way, if you play Scrabble, this is a helpful word to know because it starts with X, and we never figure out words that start with X. Um, it also sometimes starts with a Z. Xenophobia. Okay, let's do a little bit more school together. Who knows what xenophobia means? Rini, what does xenophobia mean? Yes, fear of others, fear of strangers. Can we all give Irini a hand? All of your education and all of your teaching led to this moment here with us. Because what happens if you would have said, I don't know? And I would have told all of your students what happened. Xenophobia is the fear of other or of things that are strange, particularly folks who are outsiders. Now, why would that have been the word of the year for 2016? Well, turns out we had a national election in 2016. Also, though, fascinating, because one of the things they do when they track the word of the year is they look, they, whoever the they is that's in charge of the dictionary, I didn't know that people were in charge of the dictionary. I thought that God was in charge of the dictionary. This makes me completely question our language, that there's just a group of people somewhere making these decisions. However, uh, they look at, at queries. So queries are like when you search for a term online or when you go to dictionary.com and you look up a word, they track that to figure out what words are spiking in different seasons. Turns out xenophobia was on the upswing in 2016, particularly in two different areas. One was Brexit. Do you know what Brexit is? It was the, I'm looking, looking at, uh, at Peter back here. We got some friends from the UK and parents are here. Uh, we can talk later about your own feelings about Brexit. I'm sure over there, there is no contention about it. Just like over here, there's no contention about politics. We've got it figured out. Uh, Brexit, just a quick, as a non-European, uh, I should not speak on these things, but I'm gonna. Uh, the way I sort of understand the conversations about whether uh, there should be this kind of separation from the European Union and Great Britain uh, is particularly around issues of xenophobia. Because... In Europe, there has been a ton, a ton of mass migration. This is like marking the last couple of decades of our world is something around human flow. There's so many different war zones, famines, these different things that are driving people out of homelands into what we would call like a diaspora or an exile kind of experience. It's just happening everywhere. Ai Weiwei, the Chinese... Uh, artist and activist has a movie, a documentary called Human Flow that tracks all of this movement. And so there's been all of this, all of these people who don't look or act or share customs with moving into these other countries, settling and then causing what happens naturally to us, which is a, I don't know you and you don't know me 
and we don't share a lot in common. So if we don't watch out for one another, sooner or later we're going to try to kill each other. Like that's how that thing devolves. Uh, so xenophobia spiked around conversations around Brexit. Happened again around as you got closer to November in 2016 with our national election. People were just really curious, curious or terrified about this concept of xenophobia. Xenophobia is two words. Xenos on the left side is other or stranger or foreigner or enemy. And phobia is just the word for fear. Um, so it looks a little bit like this, right? You've got a group over here, like we're a group, we're a congregation, we are a gathering or a, or a synagogue or a church or a community. So we would be over here. And then on this side is just someone who shows up from the outside. And we don't know who that person is, so they carry the label of Xenos, or of outsider. The day, this is like a very, xenophobia is a very, very natural human instinct. If you have found yourself slightly concerned or fearful of some stranger entering into some kind of personal intimate space, like, you're not alone. If somebody knocks at your door and you don't know who that person is, it doesn't matter if they look like Boy Scouts. Especially if they look like Boy Scouts. It can be terrifying. Right, that's like a little moment of xenophobia. It doesn't have to be this big, huge thing that it often is now. So you've got this, this outsider, this stranger. But what happens with strangers in any culture is if we're not careful, they can easily become enemy. Stuff's always going wrong. Stuff's going wrong here. Stuff's going wrong across the pond. And you need somebody to blame or somebody who can carry the burden of all of that and look we've got this xenos and they showed up out of nowhere and it's probably their fault that we don't have enough food or water or because the planes are burning like we've got to have somebody to pin it on and so sooner or later strangers become enemies you hear this language during the roman empire about the barbarian hordes that are just outside the city gates this sort of dangerous element that could infiltrate at any point in time. You can feel where this is going, right? It's not like I'm totally hiding the cards here. I'll give you a really, a really blatant example of xenophobia and the way it works itself out. You heard the story this week about the missionary who was killed on the island. It's around this, the Bay of Bengal here between India, Thailand, Sri Lanka. Um, so there's this island there, North Sentinel Island. And if you go back here, you can see it's pointing to the arrow right there. So there's this little bitty strip of islands. And then just to the left of that is a dot that I can barely see, and I'm right up here on the screen, called North Sentinel Island. And this is what it looks like from, from space, apparently. Um, I've not been, but Google told me that's what it looks like, and so I feel like that's true. That's a dangerous assumption to make. You can barely see, but you can see the beach on the outline here. Underneath the beach, I'm assuming, again, I'm going to venture into territory I have no business talking about, uh, geology, that maybe this is like a, a volcano that at some point pushed itself up into an island because you can see the shadow coming out. But that island is completely remote. 
the folks who live there, the, the native tribes, it's like zero contact with the outside world. They've gotten a reputation for being quite violent toward anyone who shows up from the outside. Like xenophobia just reigns supreme on this island. We know very little about it, and they know very little about anything other than the island. Here's a zoomed in even closer picture. You've got the shore here on one side. This is the eastern shore. Ocean on the right. And on the left is just like a forest. It's just trees. It is completely cut off. So when this missionary shows up out of nowhere, they have somewhere in their historical record that they've passed along through the generations a deep fear of intruders. And so this this young man is killed. And part of that is because in this culture, the move from stranger to enemy happens instantaneously. Because this island is incredibly isolated and cut off. That's just an extreme example of xenophobia. We have our own. Have you been listening to the news around the conversations about caravans and the language that gets tossed around about a group of people, mass migration from the south up through Mexico and likely toward our southern border? Some of the language that's being leveraged is the language of fear of outsiders, right? That's that's what it is. It's xenophobia. Now, why does all of this matter today for us when we talk about what it means to serve one another and serve the world? Where you, if you have your Bible, you can open it to the reading you just heard. We're in First Peter, chapter four, starting in verse seven. I'll read up to the part in question. The end of all things is near. That's a crazy statement, by the way. The end of all things is near. Or all things are about to be brought to completion. Therefore, be of self-controlled and discipline yourself for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sin. The language there for constant love is love that is long-suffering. It's love that is stretched out. Love that is a practice. It's like... From the letter to the Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. It's that kind of love. Stretch your love out for one another because love, it covers over many sins. And then this, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. I'm going to stop there because that's where we're going to sit for a little bit this morning. Xenophobia is fear of outsiders, fear of strangers. The language in this verse... Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. The word for hospitality is the word philoxenos. So there you go. You've got the same word over here. Stranger, foreigner, outsider. Philo is uh, friend or family, companion. The language of hospitality is the action whereby we turn strangers or even enemies into insiders with deep belonging. Now, I'm from the South, Bill, from Texas. You have an idea of, like, Southern hospitality just as a concept. And at least how I grew up, it meant that somebody in the family was a really good host uh, who knew how to entertain, who knew how to welcome people into their home, to feed them well. Is this true as well for you in Alabama, Leslie? Uh, we feel like we've got the market cornered on hospitality in the South. Uh, Fortunately, that veneer of hospitality covers over a whole lot of other stuff. 
that we are not so good at. Um, hospitality, for a long time, was a robust word in the life of faith. It was a key, if not the key component to our ethics in the world, our actions in the world. What it meant to serve the world is to be hospitable. All of the other sort of ways that we live into God's kingdom could sit underneath hospitality. Hospitality could be our guiding posture in the world. So it can't simply mean that we cook good casseroles and invite family over and we know how to treat them well. That's not going to do it. So what does it mean to be hospitable in the way that Jesus is talking about it? And where did hospitality go as a Christian practice? Because in the last few years, it's being recovered. You'll hear language about radical hospitality. But still, like when I say the word hospitality, we, we, myself, may think of something that is safe, that is friendly, that's nice. I don't care about nice. Nice is what you do before you know somebody. And then when you know them, nice goes out the window and you've got to move to something that's more substantial. Hospitality used to be located in uh, small, tight-knit communities. Uh, hospitality is not an idea that Christians invented. In the ancient Greek world, everybody was hospitable. It was a guiding virtue for the commons. It was a way that you would say who was in and who was out. It was a way you could advance your own class or status if you invited the right kind of people over or if you were able to host well. What Christianity did, what the Jesus movement did, is it took hospitality and it expanded its meaning and reach out into the folks who had nowhere to belong. So all of a sudden you have at the table, at the feast, the haves and the have-nots. You've got scoundrels and saints. You've got religious leaders and you've got people who are prone to sin by the very nature of their lives. People like tax collectors prostitutes hospitality somehow moved out a level and then it became a way for christians especially during the early years of their own persecution to care for one another as people would move from place to place and the gospel spreading you would welcome someone so paul is deeply indebted to the church's hospitality jesus is deeply indebted to the hospitality particularly of women in the gospels who help house and feed and shelter as he moves along in his own ministry now the word hospitality is embedded in our own language around things like hospitals right or hostels these places where you can seek refuge where you can move out of a dangerous space and into a safe space actually where hospitality went is it went into the institutions and then it became a little bit more anonymous and it fell out of common practice in our intimate gatherings at least it's radical dangerous gospel dimension of hospitality of what it means to take an outsider or an enemy and turn them into a friend that's what i want to talk about today this idea of hospitality. But one of the things I love about scripture, if you stay with it and read it deeply and carefully, is it's incredibly pragmatic. So let me read you the line. Be hospitable to one another without gongusmos. It's a fun word. Without grumbling. 
without complaining. Because if I just said, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to welcome everyone who shows up and we're going to make space at the table. And it doesn't matter what they look like, what they act like, what they smell like. Like they're just they belong. And y'all would all be like, yes, they belong. Let's do it. And then as soon as someone shows up who is different, who has different practices, different behaviors, all of the sudden. Can you believe this Xenos that showed up in the I mean, like they didn't even ask right that. That is very, very common. It's so common. Think about it like this. Did you go to see family at Thanksgiving and bring like a new girlfriend or boyfriend? I guarantee you that the big family went somewhere in another room and talked about that new outsider. Right? Either what they wore or what food they brought. That is be hospitable to others. This is Southern hospitality, right? Welcome. I'll be right back. (laughs) Be hospitable to one another without, without grumbling or complaining. Because now we get to the tension of Christian hospitality. The tension of our project that we've been given, which is bringing the kingdom of God more into this world or living more fully into it is that it is just disruptive to society. It's disruptive to cultural mores. It's disruptive to family cohesion. It's part of why Jesus says, like, don't assume that I came to bring peace. I actually came to bring a sword. And my family themselves will find themselves in tension. Because there's going to be more people at the table than you could have imagined. So I drew a little cartoon for you about what it looks like, this one little verse. So you've got, right, Philozenos over here, welcome. This wide welcome at the door and then immediately gongusmos on the other side. I've been in a lot of churches where gongusmos is like the name of the game um, because it's in tension with our central story, welcoming those who don't yet have a place of belonging in the family of God. Right? That's always what we're trying to do. We're trying to make more space for people to encounter the living God, the resurrected Jesus. We're always trying to make more space. But as that space is filled with people we don't know, we enter back into the tension of getting to know strangers, sometimes even enemies. I guarantee you there are people sitting beside you who voted different from you in the last election. Right? And in any other realm in this world, that would be enough for you to change seats, change restaurants, change the channel on the TV at the doctor's office. But what we're doing is something different. Hospitality comes with the possibility of grumbling. And it's not just you. It's not just me or our congregation. It's been happening for a while. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke's gospel. It's the end of chapter 5. Jesus is out, and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and says to him, follow me. So tax collectors are um, the worst of the worst. Tax collectors are your own people standing at the border crossing and turning you back home. It's a mess. Tax collectors worked for the emperor, worked for the government, heavily taxing their own families as a way to step ahead a little bit. So they were completely disregarded by both camps. 
right? If you're Roman, then the tax collectors are outsiders. And if you are Jewish, the tax collectors are traitors. So Jesus calling one at all is a big deal. But Levi is called and says, follow me. So he got up, he left everything and followed. Then Levi throws a feast because they love to eat. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sinners sitting at the table with them. Because this is what happens when you invite one tax collector. They bring all of their friends. And it's so annoying. And imagine if you had a whole party full of just tax collectors. Guys, it would be the worst. That's kind of the feeling, right? It'd be like having just girlfriends or boyfriends at Thanksgiving and no family that you knew or could trust. Does that sound fun? Everybody burns the turkey. The Pharisees and their scribes, so these are the religious leaders, and they're only saying what is common to their own sort of sense of conviction and beliefs. They were gongusmos to the disciples. They were complaining and grumbling, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? Because what Jesus does in the Gospels is not just talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus enacts the kingdom of God. He shows us what it looks like in the most mundane, quotidian, and intimate of places, something like a family meal, and says, watch what happens. You used to think just these folks belonged at dinner. But I've invited some new folks to dinner, and let's see what this looks like. And everybody freaks out. They all start to grumble, and they start to complain. This is Levi's feast. Jesus does not talk about universal concepts in a way that we could not live into them. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and then does it. If we read carefully, we will see what it looks like when God's world collapses into ours. It looks like Jesus. It looks like his life. It looks like who he loved, who he embraced. There's this quote by Jean Vanier. You've heard of Jean Vanier because we've talked about him a good bit here together. Founder of the Larsh communities uh, for folks uh, with special needs and disabilities, living with and partnership with folks who are able-bodied, uh, and he talks about that I, that kind of universal principle of love and that universal principle of doing good and saving the world, and how dangerous that is. And this is this quote: "While we are alone, we could believe that we loved everyone." I'm just going to read it again and let it sit with you for a little bit. While we are alone, we could believe we loved everyone. There's nowhere that this is more apparent to me than if you go to seminary or divinity school. Those of you who've been in those spaces, like everybody is definitely going to change the world. And... We better because we just took on a lot of student debt. So if it's not to change the world, I don't know what it's for. And the ideas are huge. And the ambition is, is just swollen, ego everywhere. We're going to save the world. And what Jean Vanier discovered in his life of simplicity and humility, just trying to find Jesus, that it is it is easy to love everyone, and it's a lot harder to love someone. Harawas, who's friends with Vanier, says that the church is the place where your enemies are present. And if your enemies are not in the room, then it's not the church. 
So when we are alone or when we are sealed off or isolated, then that idea of universal love, like, yes, absolutely. We all love everybody. I love all of you. And you all love everyone. We did it, guys. The kingdom is here. Class dismissed. It's only when you start to think about what it means when someone shows up for Thanksgiving dinner that you didn't invite or intend that you start to feel the tension. Um, So before we lived here, we lived in Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, you would never see a sign like this. It's just not a thing. I don't think they sold them in Oklahoma. But here, there there are a lot of signs like this. We were walking around our neighborhood in North Pasadena and came across ones. Refugees and immigrants are welcome here. No Muslim ban, no border wall. Our cities stand tall. Um, I've been in different spaces, uh, different marches and protests where this top line... Uh, became like a mantra or a chant. And there was a sense that all are welcome here as a nation because we would say that we're like a nation of immigrants. We've got like a statue in New York that was given to us. It's sort of a statue of welcome for those who are tired or, or hungry or who've lost or don't have a homeland. And so how do we make that more real? But when I see these signs in homes, like it made sense when we were marching, uh, when we were hoping that this would be true for who we are as a country. Uh, that we would welcome those who are vulnerable. But when it's at a home, I always wonder, like, what would happen if someone knocked on the door and they're like, we're here. I, we were looking for a place to stay, and your sign out front said that you were welcoming refugees and immigrants, and I happen to be both of those things. I've got my luggage. I've got three kids with me. And so where should we stay? I'm not sure how that would go. Because there's something universal about this kind of sign, but what would it mean to live into it in the particular? I don't actually know the answer to this. It's part of why uh, I've always wanted to knock on these homes and, and ask them what it, what it has meant to live into this conviction. Uh, I know folks who live into this conviction, and they're luminous. Um, I'm not sure I'm so brave. While we were alone, we could believe that we loved everyone. I'm not sure there's a better symbol of what it means to be alone than the way that we configure our private lives now. So I don't want to tell you a big thing today, this big, huge, unattainable goal for your life, because that's not where the action is. The action is in the small, everyday minutiae of being alive and being together. We're going to talk about little moves in a big world. This idea of little moves comes from Andre Schrockma, um, from the community of La Chambon in France during the Nazi occupation. He talked about, as they were sheltering uh, Jewish refugees, children and adults, um, from being shipped off the camps, he said that the goal of the Christian life is to make little moves against destructiveness. This phrase also comes from Teresa of La Salle, who talked about the little way as the way of Christ. Not big things, not unattainable ambitions, not everything full of my own ego, but what is the next right thing to do? And then the next right thing to do. What is the next kindness? The next hospitable move? These little moves in a big world. If we could just practice that together then we might discover what we've been looking for, 
which is the resurrected Christ in the world. That's what we're doing, right? We're, we're looking for Jesus, looking for signs of Jesus' activity in the world right now. We're looking for Jesus in the face of one another. We're looking for the resurrected Christ. So, we're going to talk about a theology of the narthex and the front porch. The narthex. We'll start with the front porch. Again, I'm going to lean on southern roots here. Uh, Front porches were pretty important spaces in certain communities especially. They were common spaces. So the front porch is the place where you you could step up if you were a stranger and figure out if you could become a friend. You could also figure out if you're an enemy because sometimes people sit with the front porch with like a shotgun. So... It's not a front porch you want to just wander up onto. But front porches are these spaces in between. Front porch is very similar to a narthex. Does anyone know what a narthex is? Does anyone know where the narthex is? Heyo! Yes, the narthex is that way. Uh, So narthex is the same idea of a threshold space. A space in between two worlds. So architecture well-done architecture, and this is well-done architecture, it is full of meaning and full of symbols. And as you move through the space, it's meant to transport you into another kind of reality. It is no wonder that when you show up in this space here, and you sit down in these pews, and you look up at the light coming in through the windows, you hear the organ or the electric guitar playing, that it sets you in a different posture, a different way of being in the world. And if you let it, and thank you to Leslie and the team that helped cultivate this kind of space, you might feel just a little bit closer to that idea we talk about of heaven, of God's world. Not exclusively found here, but if we can pay attention at least a spark of it found here that we can carry out into the rest of the world. But to get here, you've got to go through a lot of other things. And the narthex was built for this purpose. For a while, the narthex was a place where people who were in the middle of confession or who were doing penance and who could not come to worship could still stand close. So the narthex was literally a holding space for people in between. They weren't fully out there in the world, lost to themselves, but they weren't yet fully inside the family of faith. They were feeling it out. It is like a front porch. So I'll show you where ours is. Uh, Here is a a blueprint of our sanctuary. Do you notice other things about it? For instance, you, you do notice it's a cross, right? Long part, the transepts right here are the arms of the cross. It's a very common way of configuring religious space. So um, I'm right there. I'm right here. That circle. Right here. Which means that you are just to the right of that circle. The narthex is this space here. It is intentionally built as the in-between space. There's a line in the New Testament that says... Uh, why we are supposed to welcome strangers, why we are supposed to practice hospitality. And it says uh, that in doing so, you might accidentally be entertaining the divine. So you could also say of the narthex, like, here there be angels. 
right? There's something happening in that in-between space, in that meeting space. Here's another way to understand spatial theology. If this is the realm where we are trying to practice heaven, practicing living into the kingdom of God, again, not unique, not, not only here, but uniquely here. Not exclusively here, but at least here. Then there is this space that is outside of here that we would call the earth. And the project of Jesus has always been about uniting these two realities. Flesh and spirit, heaven and earth, Jew and Gentile, like the people of God and not the people of God. This is the space of belonging, and, and outside of this is the space of separation. And maybe even, again, when you come into the space, when you move through the narthex, which we call the lobby, when you move through that, you might find yourself settling back into belonging. Sometimes when I leave here, if I leave here by myself, I can feel myself moving back into separateness in a, in a way that is painful. Moving away from family, away from safety, away from being known and being able to show up in my own vulnerability into a place where I have to be very, very tough, show no weakness, hide my cards. Right? All of that is not good. It's not good for me and it's not good for you. So we have this space in between called the narthex. And guess who serves in the narthex? We call them the hospitality team. And again, this might feel like a simple thing. Uh, but it might be the most important thing we do as a church. We get here as a staff at 8.30 in the morning. Um, we pray together right here and talk through the Sunday. And then we head out to do the rest of our stuff to get ready for for worship. And at 10 o'clock, we have a huddle in the lobby space or in the narthex. We pray for everything that's going to happen that morning with all of our leadership teams. And then we pay attention. We pay attention to who shows up. And it really matters, those groups who are there at 10 o'clock. It really matters because every Sunday, someone comes into worship who feels like they don't belong. It's their first time or it's their hundredth time. But they're not sure they have a place or a home. And our hospitality team is so good at that philozenos, at that taking a stranger and transforming them into a friend, or taking themselves as stranger and transforming themselves into friend. It's like, it's amazing. It's, it's full of, of grace. And it all happens in that space right there. What would it mean if just the smallest first practice was that we all intended to be hospitable, to welcome each person, not just the ones that we like a lot. It was so good to see you this morning, Dan. Right? It is easy to hug you and to love you, but we know each other. But not just to welcome the ones who you feel so comfortable with, but the ones who make you pay attention, maybe take a step back. What would it mean if we showed up at 10 o'clock every Sunday just to see who else came? And when they come, when they show up, to welcome them like they just showed up to the party and they brought all the good food. With so much joy and excitement, this is the language of the kingdom. That's Christ the King Sunday.
turns out that we're always looking for the big, showy signs of God's sovereignty, omniscience, all those big church words. And always, we've been looking in the wrong places. The whole story of the Gospels is one of these first followers of Jesus, following Jesus, trying to figure out how in the world he is going to claim Messiah. Messiah, or Christ, is the anointed one, and the language of anointing is the language of royalty. So when is Jesus going to take the throne? When is he going to put all of the enemies in the ground, and is he going to rise and put a crown and take a scepter and lead? Just like David and like Solomon, right? So much splendor and so much majesty. When is Jesus going to do that? And over and over again, the disciples miss what Jesus is actually doing. The religious leaders miss what Jesus is actually doing. They grumble. Can you believe who he invited to dinner? There were senators who didn't get an invitation. There were viceroys. There were emperors. Like right, all the wrong people. Turn to Matthew 25. You know this set of verses. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, in his doxa, in his kadosh, in his weightiness, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. We have all this king language, right? It's Christ the King Sunday. This makes sense. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep at his right and goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is what they've been waiting for. That the kingdom of heaven, where they will be the winners and everyone else will be the losers, will finally show up and they can enter in. And then they can lay to rest anyone who has held them back and they can take their rightful place as the rulers over history. Come in, all of those to the kingdom of heaven that has been prepared for you since the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a Xenos and you welcomed me. I was a stranger and you synagogued me, is the language in the Greek. You gave me a community of belonging. I was naked, you gave me clothing, I was sick, and you took care of me, I was in prison, and you visited me. Then all of the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you in any of these ways and do any of these things for you? The king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did to the worthless ones, to the smallest, most insignificant ones, you've done for me. And then he tells the story again from the other perspective. Those who did not do these things and have not found the kingdom. That little line, I was an outsider and you made space. Jesus is both host and guest. We are invited to make space for Jesus when Jesus shows up. 
to not miss it when Jesus walks into our lives. And it will surprise us because it seems to surprise everybody in the scriptures. When the divine is born into our world, when it walks through the front door, it is always so disruptive. Shakes up our best laid plans. In our reading from First Peter, there's another word. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Like good stewards. The, the word for steward is this word up here, oikonomos. Two words again. To steward something uh, is to stand between the owner of those things and everyone or everything who might need those things. So oiko is the language of household. And households were also economies in the ancient days. It wasn't just like the place where your bed was. It was the place where all of your life happened. And nomos is the language for law, but also the language for like grain and feed and substance. And so it's the oikonomos is the middle manager for God. That that's what we are called to be, stewards of God's manifold grace in the world. This language of like full spectrum color of grace or of charis in the world. What does it mean to be God's middle managers? Paul talks about our call to be stewards. He says that we steward the mysteries of God. There is this message that we send to the world when we open these doors. When we say that there is room for people here. We are not inviting people to show up here and have it all together. We are almost always inviting the folks who need this space the most. The parts of us that need this space the most. And it's the parts of us and the parts of our world that are most unruly, that are, that are most disheveled, that are isolated and scared, and will carry all of that into this space. But God has entrusted to us the mysteries, the manifold grace of God. If I thought that it was just entrusted to me, it would be too much. But it turns out it's entrusted to all of us. To all of you, with, with me, all together. All service might be boiled down to hospitality. To be on the lookout for strangers. To be on the lookout for strangers who might look like enemies. And to bring them into friendship and belonging. The reason that you can do this 
It's because God has done this for you and for me and for us. Christ plays host and Christ plays guest. The invitation to deep belonging in this community of faith, this fourth anchor of our life together, is helping all of us to make this true, to give hospitality its robustness and its depth again. To feel like you could bring anyone into this space and you could bring any part of yourself into this space and community and you would find healing. You would find safety. You would find a true name and identity. Not as outsider, but as child of God. There's space for you here to show up and be known. And there's space for the world too. Would you pray with me? God, in your economy, there is enough to go around. In your home, there are plenty of rooms. And at your table, there is enough chairs and enough casserole. In your world, there is enough love to cover us all. I am grateful, God, for this family made up of all kinds of outsiders and strangers who somehow belong to one another here without pretense, without facade. We can show up. And God, that is because you are here with us. I pray for those who feel homeless, who are homeless, or who feel without a family. And for whatever has happened in the isolation, whatever sin and brokenness we confess, would you cut a path home through the love that we share? Keep our egos in check that the work you've called us to do is in fact doable and the love that we can share will not run out. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus who welcomes all of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.